Watch her. Um, if you have a Bible, would you like to turn to the book of Proverbs, chapter 27? If you don't have a Bible but would like to follow what we look at today in a Bible, then just raise a hand and uh, one will be brought to you. Alternatively, you can follow the scriptures on the screen above the stage. But keep your hand up until it's seen. There's a few down the front, uh, by this pillar and down this side. Wonderful. Okay, so I'll let you find your place. It's Proverbs 27. Some of you might be aware that um, a few times, not currently, but a few times in the past, Arnold, who leads the church here, has... Uh, led a preaching class where he's gathered a few people together, gathered a few men, in order to train them, in order to uh, encourage them, equip them, um, give them opportunity to, to preach to a sort of a select crowd, get some helpful feedback, and so, so learn how to do it. And um, obviously Arnold is then sharing 40 years worth of experience, and as a, I guess there's a few number of us, maybe uh, a dozen or so, who've really benefited from that. If there was one thing... I could add to Arnold's preaching class, um, it would be this. On the day that you preach, make sure that your printer works before you need to leave to come to the church meeting place. That way, you can be sure that the notes that you've so carefully prepared, you can take a copy of and take to the Jubilee Center and feel confident. Um, So, you may gather from that that my printer stopped working this morning, and so all the notes I prepared out of the window completely, so I've got a few scribbles, so I hope you'll forgive me if uh, I sometimes kind of just maybe search for my train of thought. You might think that's nothing unusual, Um, but we'll, (laughs) all the same, we're going to look at the Bible and see what God wants to say to us uh, this morning, trusting Him uh, to reveal to us uh, His Word. We're going to look at one particular proverb, Proverb 27, uh, verse 17, which says this, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. That is the scripture that we're going to look at this morning and see what God wants to say to us through that in the here and now. Now, we need to do a little bit of background first to understand, okay, where is this coming from? The whole book of Proverbs, Dan just picks one out and says we're going to look at that. We need a bit of a a background to understand what is this verse getting at? What are the Proverbs getting at in general? And I think it was Mark last week when preaching mentioned Solomon. King Solomon, who at the very beginning of his reign as a young man, was aware the size of the task before him, leading God's people as king, and aware of his own lack of resources. And so he asks God for wisdom. He makes that his first request. God, please grant me wisdom. I'm just but a lad, really, and I've been given this massive responsibility. I really need your wisdom uh, in order to go about uh, leading these people well. And that's really where, where wisdom begins, with accepting, God, we need what you've got. We come, as we were hearing last week, with empty hands, but we come to a God who's generous and gracious and grants wisdom to all who ask for it. And so that's what Solomon did. He asked for wisdom. And God answered generously and graciously 
And so this book of Proverbs is like the evidence of God's answering Solomon's prayer, giving him wisdom upon wisdom. And so catalogued here are all sayings that, uh, or many sayings that originate uh, from Solomon. However, they're not all recorded um, at the same time in one go. So we're looking at Proverbs 27 near the end of the book. We see kind of the context to this latter chunk of a few chapters at the beginning of chapter 25 of Proverbs, where it says, where it says this, These are more Proverbs of Solomon, copied by the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now, Solomon wrote, uh, reigned over Israel about ten centuries before Christ. Hezekiah, the king, followed year, well, centuries later. Um, and really, he was one of the few kings of, of Judah at that time who actually did what was right in the eyes of God. There had been a whole raft of kings. Solomon, uh, thereafter, most kings just went their own way, did what was right in their own eyes. In God's eyes, uh, they, uh, they, did, they did bad. Uh, they set up uh, altars for other gods, they kind of rejected, they turned away from the living God, and so the people just wandered further and further away from God. And so there's this great drift, you see it through the book of two kings, uh, where king after king on the whole just does evil in the eyes of God. And then Hezekiah comes along, we see in uh, the book of two kings, chapter 18, God's verdict on him. If I can find it myself. Two kings. 18. Unusually, here comes a king, and it's described in verse 3, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snakes Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. So the, the nation had just been wandering far from God, worshipping other God, but here comes Hezekiah, a man, it says then in verse 5, who trusted in the Lord the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given him. And the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. So a great change in the nation. It had been drifting far away, but now comes a leader and a ruler who wants to bring, um, bring the nation back to following God. And if you like, we could almost describe that as a revival in the nation of following God. And so back to Proverbs then. Here's Hezekiah. His intention is to follow God. And so at that time, he ensures that perhaps Proverbs of Solomon that had been maybe shared word of mouth or catalogued elsewhere, he made sure they were copied um, by men in his court to make sure that people were getting hold of Wisdom. People were getting hold of what it means to, to live God's way. Now, in particular, it has been suggested, um, and there seems some evidence to support this, it's been suggested that what Hezekiah in particular was doing was gathering these proverbs together in order to train young men who would then take up positions um, in his royal court. They would, be, they would be trained, they'd be educated, and so he wanted to ensure that these young men who'd assumed positions of some responsibility and authority in the kingdom were well-trained and were wise in the things of God. So these 
Proverbs were collected. Now we can think about ourselves, that we are part of a kingdom. We're part of a kingdom that God himself is leading. Jesus is our king, and he's called us to be part of his kingdom. This is described in the book of 1 uh, Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse there, verse 9. It says there, writing to all those who have received Christ as Savior, says there, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so perhaps then, looking back into uh, Proverbs, there are these Proverbs being gathered together for these hand-picked individuals who are going to be involved in this kingdom. Now God says of all of us, I have hand-picked you and brought you into my people, part of my kingdom, part of this holy nation, in, that, in order that you might be involved in declaring my praise, in order that your life might be testimony to the wisdom of God. And so that's God's plan for us, to be part of his kingdom, not just spectating, but intimately involved. And so Jesus himself, when he spoke to his disciples in John 15, and reading from verse 13, he said this, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So Jesus is saying, I've not just called you randomly, I've called you friends, that you might know sort of the business that I have, that you might be involved in, in my kingdom, and I've called you and chosen you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. That's what God has planned for us. And so we arrive then, Proverbs 27, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. What we see from here, first of all, is that God wants to sharpen us. God has chosen each and every one of us to be involved in his kingdom. Just as Phil was sharing that, that message earlier on, that encouraging picture about these kind of light bulbs, they're all in place. They've all been put in the right place. They're all where God wants them to be. And uh, perhaps I just need a little bit of a, a tweak or a turn uh, to bring full brightness. That's using a different image, saying something similar. God chooses each and every one of us to be part of his kingdom, to be involved uh, in what he has on this earth. And he's chosen each and every one of us. Then he comes to sharpen us. And that sharpness is talking about something, uh, something which is good. Sometimes we can think of sharpness and think, well, that might be indicating something that's dangerous, something that could be could do harm, and so we might refer to someone who's got a sharp tongue, and we'd understand by that that their, their kind of tongue does damage. It, it says things that perhaps are 
a kind of hurtful, that just kind of use humor in quite a cutting way. It's sharp. It's a bit dangerous. What's being spoken of here is a sharpness which is not, is not dangerous, but is useful. There are a whole raft of things that actually, the sharper they are, the better and more use, useful they are. I've discovered this um, with cutting my hair, which I use just a, an electric set of clippers. And uh, I know if the, if the blades are sharp, it's fine, done quickly, no problem. If the blades are just a bit blunt, then I don't cut my hair, I end up pulling it out. And uh, that's the moment we think, no, bluntness is bad. There are things you want them to be sharp. If you go to a hairdresser, you want the hairdresser to kind of treat you well, ask you how your holiday's been, all that jazz, but you don't want them hacking away at your hair with something that's blunt. I can, uh, I can assure you, not that I've been to a hairdresser for a while, uh, I just do it myself. Um, bluntness is something that can be just as damaging. If we just kind of go in with great kind of gusto, but it's, we're not kind of coming with a refined edge, we find actually we're just doing, doing damage uh, rather than bringing something helpful. So garden tools, they need to be sharp in order to, to kind of cut stuff down, in order to prune things so that things, might, things that might grow again. If a surgeon is doing an operation, and we won't dwell on this for too long because it's a bit squeamish perhaps, but again, you kind of want them to be quite precise with the incisions that they make, quite definite. And uh, if they were kind of just hacking away with something that was blunt, then um, it's going to be a bit of a messy patch-up job afterwards. Precision is a good thing. So sometimes sharpness is used to describe something very, very good. So we see in the book of Hebrews how the writer to the Hebrews there describes the Word of God. And in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So the Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. What does that mean? Well, it means it's, it's, it's useful in a very precise and accurate way. The Word of God is, is not kind of clumsy. It kind of comes right in and it kind of penetrates and does exactly what it needs to. It's not kind of just uh, vague or wishy-washy. It's useful. It's it's there for us to grow and to be edified. So, so, so here we are. Each of us, as you like, is then a tool chosen by God with specific purpose in mind. We might be uh, different sorts of tools, different shapes and sizes, but God has planned for us specific purposes in his kingdom. Now, what can happen to tools, what can happen to, uh, to my clippers or scissors when you cut stuff, is they just get blunted. With use, the edge can just become, uh, can become blunted. And that can be true, that can be true of us. But uh, Paul speaks to Timothy and he reminds him to, to preach the word of God in season and out of season. There are times that are very convenient. There are times perhaps when Timothy would feel incredibly sharp and... Uh, and, and full of vigor. Other times when there's, it doesn't feel quite so convenient, it's not flowing quite so easily, and yet Paul is saying, look, even in those times, press on. And so we find that the Bible is incredibly realistic. It doesn't expect us 
to, uh, to kind of breeze through life uh, always sharp. Sometimes you can just be aware of situations you're going through and there's a sense in which you can just feel uh, drained by circumstances, whether it be work, whether it be uh, tricky relationships of one sort or another. Things that come and just cause a slight bluntness, a slight taking off of your, of your edge. Now what we can think when we find something, and maybe you've got some tools in your cellar, in your outhouse, or wherever you keep them, and you get them out, you're preparing to do some task, maybe you're out in the garden, building a wall, whatever, you come to your tools and you think, actually, this one's blunt. This one is not going to work so well. And we live in quite a, a culture that is, is, is happy to kind of just dispose of things and just pass them away. Uh, stuff, as people say, is not built to last now. And so it's only designed to last so long. After a while, it gets past its useful shelf life. And you have to replace it with a new one. And so there's a tool that was once really helpful, once it was just perfectly refined, it's become blunt. Temptation for us then can be, well, let's just get rid. Let's just get rid of it. And so sometimes for us, if we're feeling... Um, feeling blunted in ourselves, not quite got the same exuberance or freedom when we pray or when we come before God, we can think, ah, oh, I just feel, I feel blunt, I feel ineffective in God's hands. We can think, well, does God then want to dispose of me because I'm not feeling on top form? Does God want to dispose of us in any way? God's got a great plan. God's got a great mission, surely. He's all-conquering hero who's leading us on a massive mission. And you know, maybe it's just a case of, well, whoever, whoever falls behind stays behind. Whoever drops off the back, it just gets left. We need to press on and uh, just need to leave behind all these tools that are no longer up to scratch. If that is the case for anyone here, just kind of battling with those kind of thoughts and, and lies, in fact, we need to hear what the Word of God says. So Romans 11 Verse 29 encourages us there. God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Elsewhere in the book of Numbers, we have quite um, a strong encouragement as well. In the, in the book of Numbers, verse 20, chapter 23, verse 19, describing God here, it says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Does he choose us and then dispose, like a light bulb that's just kind of lost its power, seems to not be quite screwed in, right? Well, I need to replace that. Let's get rid of it. Let's put a new one in there. Is that what God is like? Is that what God is like with us? Now, God doesn't lead us down a cul-de-sac in this life. God, God doesn't lead us to um, a point of, of kind of no return or a dead end where he said, well, I've led you so far. Now, oh, I guess you'll actually just have to wait here. I need to move on and you're not ready. So just, just stay there. Um, sometimes you kind of see that in, in action-adventure films. So there is the, the all-conquering hero for the hour who tends to say, uh, to some damsel in distress that he's just rescued, wait here, 
I need to go and deal with something more important and beat some baddies, the best thing for you to do is just stay right here and do nothing else. And um, that tends to be the case with, say, I don't know, any favourite superheroes? Um, any hands up for, for Spider-Man? Anyone a goer for Spider-Man? Anyone a favourite for Spider-Man? Superman? Yeah? I, I, I say that because I'm about to then criticise Superman. Not that he's a real person to criticise anyway. But uh, Superman is a loner. He's a go-it-alone kind of hero. Happy to rescue people. Happy to kind of bring people out of a perilous situation, bring them down to safety, and then fly off. His mission continues, but he's just then going to leave uh, whoever he's rescued uh, just to, to kind of entertain themselves, and they're not really used. Superman's got a mission, which is probably to go and defeat some equally bad-dressed um, guy who's got despotic plans to take over the world, and, uh, and Superman is, is super, so he's self-reliant, and so he goes and does that. He rescues people. They admire him and adulate him, uh, and they're just left, just going, wow, is it a bird, is it a plane? No, it's Superman, off by himself to do some another incredible exploit. And maybe we can feel like God, God's on a mission, but God isn't a loner in his mission. God doesn't kind of just take it on himself. I mean, it is gloriously by his sovereign power that he's doing it, but actually he looks to involve people. So he rescues and he saves. And he specifically chooses and then commissions and says, actually, I've got a role for you. I've got a place for you. Adulate him, uh, and they're just left, just going, wow, is it a bird, is it a plane? No, it's Superman, off by himself to do some another incredible exploit. And maybe we can feel like God, God's on a mission, but God isn't a loner in his mission. God doesn't kind of just take it on himself. I mean, it is gloriously by his sovereign power that he's doing it. But actually, he looks to involve people. So he rescues and he saves. And he specifically chooses and then commissions and says, actually, I've got a role for you. I've got a place for you. You're in my house. I've got a place that I've prepared for you. I've called you to be part of my family. And even I give you gifts for you to use in my kingdom. And it was so encouraging to have uh, Jeremy visit us uh, recently, a few weeks back. Jeremy, who oversees uh, this church and other churches in the north of the UK, just sharing with us again this vital thing of being baptised in the Holy Spirit. And this is one of our distinctives, that we, we actually believe this. <laughs> we believe that God, by His Spirit, comes into us and gives us gifts that we would not naturally have. But so easy in the Christian world, it's possible to focus on the gifts of a few rather than gifts of think, well, you're like a tool that's got a little blunt, a little bit rusty around the edges. Well, I've just got to move on. I'm going to leave you now. I'm going to find some tools that are sharp. God has chosen us. God doesn't abandon us. God wants to sharpen each and every one of us. And recently I've been reading the book of 1 Corinthians. And if ever there was a church that just seems to be blunt, it must have been the Corinthians. And as you read through it, you think, these guys are horrendous. Paul's got no qualms about saying to the people in that church that your meetings do more harm than good. It's like you're just blunt with each other. You're just whacking each other and doing harm with each other. I'm not saying that because uh, we resemble the Corinthians in that respect at all. I think it's a fantastic church, so encouraging to be a part of this place. 
the Corinthian church was blunt. But what's God's response to them? What's Paul's response to them? Paul had got hold of God's heart, and so he doesn't just think, right, I spent time in Corinth, planted that church, but you're just going so wayward, I've had enough with you, I'm off somewhere else. No, he actually wants to go and visit with them, and specifically is writing to to them to bring things to their attention, because he wants to sharpen them up again. So there's a, 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 a freshness and... Uh, there's kind of courage to go about the things that God has called them to, and they're getting refined. So God doesn't dispose of them, but rather he gets them and wants to continue to, to sharpen them and hone them. He doesn't abandon them. God's call for them was irrevocable, and God's gifting for them was irrevocable. It, it wasn't going to be uh, cast aside. So God wants to sharpen us. Secondly, we need to see in this proverb how it is that God wants to sharpen us. And we see here, it's described as, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So the answer to that question, how is it that God sharpens us of all? God comes to save us, to rescue us, but then to fill us with his spirit, to commission us for the mission that he has in mind for us. And so he spoke to his disciples after he rose again, and uh, and, and, and breathe them on, on them to receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father sent me, I am sending you. God's chosen us and appointed us to bear fruit. It's not a haphazard choice, and it's not a choice that he's just then going to think, well, you're like a tool that's got a little blunt, a little bit rusty around the edges. Well, I've just got to move on. I'm going to leave you now. I'm going to find some tools that are sharp. God has chosen us. God doesn't abandon us. God wants to sharpen each and every one of us. experience, but there's a process happening whereby each and every tool is sharpened up. So how does this happen? How how can we sharpen one another? And that's just what we're going to spend a few moments looking at before we close, is actually how can we sharpen each other? It's all well and good looking at the scriptures, but we need to apply this and make sure we understand what it's getting at. How can we sharpen one another? How can we be involved uh, in sharpening one another? First of all, there's a vital place in doing what we're doing right now, which is meeting together. We see this in the book of Hebrews as well in chapter 10 and verse 21, 25 rather. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, for the Hebrews there, for the the people that uh, that writer is is addressing, he's clearly picking up that there's a possibility of them giving up, a possibility of them perhaps shrinking back. That can be kind of a reaction sometimes, where we feel sometimes we just don't want to necessarily be with people uh, maybe if we're feeling kind of vulnerable or we're feeling like our edge has been blunted, I've just, I'd rather just be by myself right now. And so the writer of the Hebrews there is encouraging them, no, don't, don't give up. Recognize the importance. Recognize the role this plays. Recognize who you are. You're part of God's people and God wants to declare his praises through you and therefore God wants you to get together so that in, in a process of meeting with one another, you sharpen each other up. Now, there are a number of things that can 
draw us away from wanting to meet or can kind of draw us away from the, the benefit that, that that should bring. And one is pride. So we see right at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul begins to address some of the, uh, the issues that are facing that church. And in particular, he's picking up that there are divisions. And it's interesting, he says this in verse 12, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 12. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, which is another way of saying I follow Peter. What he's picking up is they're kind of preferring one leader to another. I'll, I'll listen to this person, but I'm not really necessarily going to get a load out of that person. And so they're divided. But it says right at the end there, well, still another says, I follow Christ. We think, well, surely that's, surely that's a good thing, to follow Christ. But it seems to be mentioned here in a negative context. Well, what does that mean? It kind of, mentioned, it kind of means super spiritual pride. Whereby someone's kind of maybe coming to meetings, but always regarding themselves as already sorted. As, um, well, you know, me and God, I, I've, gone, I've got my hotline to heaven. God speaks to me, and that's wonderfully the case anyway, but God speaks to me, and um, uh, he sh- shows me his will. And so I, I, don't really, I don't really need people. And so I'm happy to show up. I'm happy to turn up at a few things. Happy to, uh, to kind of go with the flow of various meetings. And, and perhaps then I will be used to uh, encourage other people and, and teach other people. But never expecting to be used. And never expecting that other people will actually do them good. And so they're not actually not that fussed about meeting together. It's kind of a, kind of a pride for people who might just feel, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to float from church to church. I've got, maybe even I've, I've got a message for the church, but the church hasn't got a message for me. I've come with a message, and uh, uh, me and God, just, we're just like that, and I don't need anyone else's advice. I don't need other people to bring any instruction into my life. I don't need any guidance. It's just me and God. I've got my hotline, and I'm going to stick with that. And so in the book of Proverbs here, we're actually picking up what does it mean to live wisely? Proverbs 13 and verse 20. He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. He who walks with the wise. Someone who is wise is someone who's going to seek other people out, who's going to ask advice, who's, who's not backwards about actually saying, look, can I just get your advice on this matter? I'm facing this decision. What, what do you think? Seeking out the wise counsel of other believers. Or even when stepping out in a new responsibility, having the, the confidence and security to actually say to others, okay, will you give me feedback on what I've just done? And I think that is so, so refreshing when that takes place. And there's just a, a willingness and a security to do so. We might think, well, if I, if I say that, I, I'm worried that I'll just get a lot of flack. Well, no, we're, we're family together. And so always the purpose should be in our hearts is to build one another up in love. So have you got any feedback? Is there anything you wanted to point out? And that's a way in which actually we, we, we grow, we nurture, we encourage each other. The proud person never gets that because they never seek it. There's always a sense in which they're just self-reliant. Again, like a bit of this Superman 
loner sort of character who feels they can just go it alone. Well, actually, no, we're called to be part of a family together whereby actually there's a freedom to ask one another, what do you think about this? I'm about to make a decision. What do you think? And so pride can get get in the way of meeting together. Sometimes apathy. Sometimes just the sense of, well, I'm happy to get along, but I've kind of heard it all before. I've been a Christian for years. Maybe for some, time, for some people, the, the challenge is, you know, you've, you've been a Christian or you've been involved in, in church life uh, for as long as you can remember. Maybe in terms of family life, you've just always grown up in and around other Christians. And what can happen then is just a sense of take it or leave it. It's a sort of mundane Christian exi- existence. is kind of just getting together every now and again. And so they can just become an, an apathy. And again, the writer to the Hebrews, I think, wants to try and, and, uh, and head some of this off as well. And he says to it, says to the, uh, to the readers there in Hebrews 3, verse 12, See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You might be thinking, well, again, there's nothing new. Uh, well familiar with Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Let's uh, not give up meeting together. Let's encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. It's pretty straightforward, this really. What it's speaking of here in terms of encouragement is this activity, which is, which is a, a daily occurrence, seeking to encourage one another. Sometimes even if we just recognize in our friends, people we're close to, that... Um, that kind of apathy seems to, to creep in. They're not really around so much, not getting along to things and just seem to be kind of going through life in a blasé fashion. Then actually by, by loving them, because we love them, because of our desire to be uh, kind of godly friends, we're going to seek opportunities to encourage daily. It's so easy that our hearts can get uh, hardened, can get hardened towards wanting to meet with God. And, and encouraged by others. I've just, I've, well, I've heard it all before. And sometimes I've kind of, you hear that of people who've maybe been saved for years and it's almost like they regard now, well, I've, there's nothing new I'm going to hear. And it's almost like just, if novelty is the value, then they're just seeking something new. And so if it's not, if it's not, if it's not sparking some novel interest, well, they're not really interested. That's not to say God doesn't want to speak to them and encourage them in their walk. I've heard it all before, they might say. Well, well, no, there's more for us to understand. Encouragement for us to be stirred in. God wants to sharpen us. He wants us, therefore, to meet together. It's It's not an end in itself. It's part of the process of us in God's hands being sharpened up. Meeting together is one thing, then, in which God wants to sharpen us. But... Again, it's not sufficient to say we're just going to get together in the same room. Again, in Corinthians, there the situation was, well, their meetings were doing more harm than good. So there's got to be some, some way in which there's something more active and more uh, proactive than that. So we look at the second thing, looking for opportunities to encourage. We have a biblical command, as we've already been looking at these verses, a biblical command to seek to encourage one another. That is true for all of us. A biblical command. Something we want to seek to do. Sometimes in our minds we can be thinking, I hope that I get encouragement. I hope 
that people will notice what I've done. And it's almost like God just wants to remind us again just to switch our perspective around, not to be, perspe- not to be preoccupied with how much encouragement I'm receiving, but to make it our preoccupation to see how we can encourage one another daily, how we can seek to build one another up, how we can seek to get alongside each other and, and, and maybe sometimes bring challenges, but also notice what people have done and bring encouragement. It's a specific gift as well. It's a biblical command for all of us, but actually a specific spiritual gift. And we see that in the book of Romans in chapter 12. Paul begins to list here some of the gifts of the Spirit that are working in the body of Christ. And one of those mentioned in in verse 8, if it is encouraging, let him encourage. It goes on, if it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. There's possibly no greater or more important gift than just a very simple gift of encouragement. Sometimes we can be kind of aware of all the stuff that happens up the front. And there might be people in this room and you've actually got the gift of encouragement. You might even recognize it in yourself, but then you might look down on it and think, well, it's not that important. No, if your gift is getting alongside other people and encouraging them with what God is doing in their lives, with what you've seen about God at working in their lives, then encourage. We see in the book of Acts, men like Barnabas who seem to almost personify the gift of encouragement. That's even his name is, is as such. It says there in, in Acts 4, verse 30, No, it doesn't. Yeah, Acts 4, verse 36. Mentions this guy, Joseph, a a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Elsewhere, he's described as a man who is full of the Holy Spirit. And the way that manifests itself is in just overflowing, exuberant encouragement. So he's the guy who's sent to... a place in Antioch, little known to perhaps the, the apostles, but they hear there that some, some people have got hold of the good news, that Gentiles are coming into the kingdom. They send Barnabas. He goes along. He's aware of just the evidence of the grace of God, and so he just he encourages them. He exudes the stuff. When, after Saul, uh, later known as Paul, um, gets saved, he's regarded with hostility for some time. Who is it that recognizes actually what God has done in this guy is genuine? Other people are just scared of him. He's been persecuting the church. He's been uh, rounding people up to be beaten or to be imprisoned, even to be uh, killed like, uh, like, Peter, uh, for, like Stephen, all for their faith and all for the message they're speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been persecuting the church. And so it's understandable then in Acts 9... Verse 26, it describes here how Paul came to Jerusalem. He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. So who was it then that got alongside that guy? But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. 
He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had been preached. He had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. It takes this Barnabas character to see in Paul what other people aren't seeing. Other people just look at the exterior or consider the previous reputation and think, we don't want anything to do with him. But Barnabas goes and sees something that's been hidden and so gets along this guy, gets alongside this guy and encourages him. And then the story goes on from there about all the different ways in which Paul and Barnabas are used to bring the gospel to city after city, town after town. But it began with just a simple gift of encouragement, seeing what God is doing in people's lives. And I think that is such a vital gift. It's not my own insight, but actually it was Nick Sharp sharing how encouragement is just such a vital gift to be exercised in the church. It then can lead to, uh, to other things. A few weeks ago, in response to uh, Jeremy meeting with us and speaking with us, uh, we're in our core group, uh, led by Chris and Bryony, and uh, Chris did what I thought was just the most incredibly brave but wonderful example of leadership. And he said, right, okay, let's not just talk about this, let's, let's apply this. Why don't we just now go around the room and encourage each other about what we see God doing in each other's lives? And um, kind of what began as a slightly tentative, awkward experience... Because let's face it, I don't think in this culture we're all that strong at encouraging. We're not all that strong in just kind of bounding up to say someone and saying, look, well done for what you've done. Or I see God doing this in, you, in your life. We tend to kind of keep praise silent. So we, we tend to keep uh, encouragement to ourselves and, and not share it with people. And it can just feel awkward. It just feels kind of, oh, it feels a bit embarrassing almost. But it was just something to push through. And then by the end of it, it was just a sense, no, it wasn't just that we'd decided to say nice things. It wasn't that at all. It was almost like then just God added to what we'd said. And there was a sense of God with us, building us, stirring us up. At the point at which, by the end of just sharing simple encouragements with one another, each person receiving something from someone else, it was almost like it just led to prophecy. It led to see, no, I, I can genuinely see what God's doing in your life. And it led to an unfolding and a strengthening of all of us who were there together. I thought, oh, it can just start feeling awkward. Let's not kind of wait for it to feel very natural. Let's not wait, in a sense, just to feel like it's second nature before stepping out and bringing encouragement to people. It might be that you've seen something that no one else has seen. And it's just a simple case of going to someone, not necessarily with fanfare or trumpet or grabbing a microphone, but just going to someone and saying, look, I've observed this in you. And it's helped me. Or just going to someone and saying a simple, well done. It's a vital part of us building ourselves up, sharpening one another, being used in God's kingdom. Thirdly, however, encouragement is not just about a, a, a sort of polite flattery that we will um, kind of say fluffy, vague things to each other to kind of make each other feel good. One theme that runs through Proverbs 27 is the theme of good friendship, which this verse we've been looking at ties into. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We need good friends around us. Now, good friends don't just come with flattery. 
sometimes they will notice things that do need to be said which aren't immediately so lovely. So we see in Proverbs 27 and verse 5, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Yeah, we're not just into making each other feel warm. We're not just into saying kind of how wonderful we are all the time and just uh, kind of appealing to people's ego and sort of trying to build up people's um, self-esteem. No, we, we actually want to be honest and, in, and have integrity with one another that because we're called to be part of a kingdom, God's kingdom, which is advancing, we're not just going to, uh, to let things wander. And so if we do notice things in other people's lives, we, in boldness and in love, will speak to them. And so we see, again, Paul's advice to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. He says, as we've referred to before, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Paul is kind of happy to use all of those words in the same sentence, correct, rebuke, encourage. It's not that rebuking or correcting are completely out of character or out of place in God's kingdom. Sometimes very necessary. Sometimes there's a case of saying, well done. Sometimes there's a case of spurring one another on, exhorting one another. Not allowing things just to kind of uh, become blunted. A while back we were looking in the book of uh, Colossians. And uh, didn't look at this in detail at the time. But I was always interested to, to find out more about what this means. Colossians 4 verse 17. Paul here is giving a whole load of specific messages to people at the end of his letter and he says this in verse 17. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the work you have received in the Lord. As I pondered that, I thought, how would that feel? A, this letter is getting read in front of the whole church, presumably. And then Archippus is getting singled out and he's told, see to it that you complete the work you've received in the Lord. Now that form of encouragement is more of a, a kind of a spurring on encouragement. Come on, Archippus. Interesting name. Come on, Archie. Uh, don't lose sight of what God's given you. Don't lose sight of the plans and purposes God has got in you. Don't get apathetic. Don't get proud. Come on. God's got work for you. We are God's workmanship which he's prepared good works in advance for each and every one of us to do. And sometimes necessary then, with our friends in love, to say, come on, there is a mission, there is a goal. We're part of God's kingdom. We're not just wanting to make up the numbers. We're not just wanting to kind of bide the time. We're part of God's kingdom. Let's exhort one another, not just with vague flattery, but with real encouragement that will help each other. And so we're going to sharpen each other in God, because we believe God's got great plans and purposes for us in this church. Let's pray together.